This is an ABC podcast. A story is a tale about the time the world changed forever. Or as the Russian writer Nikolai Gogol put it, the final words of every good story, every story worth telling, are in effect and nothing would ever be the same again. Today we're looking at stories, comedies, tragedies, inspirational true life stories that are all powered by that kind of transformation. Stories which end in the certain knowledge that nothing will be the same again. G'day, I'm Michael Cathcart. Welcome to The State Show. Yes, the stirring revolutionary anthem from the musical Les Miserables. That show opened on the West End in 1985 and it's still running, making it London's longest running musical ever. It's by two Frenchmen, Claude-Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil. They've written several more big shows, including Miss Saigon and Marguerite. And they're now in Australia to present a show which features their best love songs. It's called Do You Hear the People Sing? Alain and Claude-Michel, welcome to the stage show. Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here. So Alain, you two met in Paris in the 1970s. What were you both doing there? Uh, we were what you called at that time A&R men. I was with a publishing company and Claude-Michel was with a record company. And uh, we were, you know, producing some records, writing songs, attempting at doing, you know, something in the artistic world of uh, what used to be called show, French show business at that time and uh, trying to find what we really wanted to do with ourselves. Well, Claude Michel, you had a hit song at this time called Le Premier Pas, which means the first step, and it was uh, number one for 16 weeks. You actually sang this. It's a story about a man saying, I would like the woman to take the first step, or as we say in English, to make the first move. Le Premier Pas d'Amour son lit jour après jour Elle me dévoilera son corps Me donnera tous les remords De n'avoir pas dit plus tôt Le premier mot yeah, what a lovely voice you've got there. <laughs> what gave you the idea that you two should join forces to write a French musical? Because this is a long way from writing pop tunes. First of all, I didn't want to be a performer because before the Le Premier Pas, we wrote already the French Revolution, La Révolution Française, the first musical that we wrote together. And I was playing the king of France who was beheaded. And uh, I was beheaded 45 times. <laughs> but I realized after the opening night and the second night that it's not a job for me because I was bored to have to do every night the same thing and singing the same thing. I understand that for some people the passion is to be on stage. But it's not at all for me. What I like is to create something, to see it happening, but certainly not doing it night after night after night. Yeah. 
Alain, let, let, let's hear from you because the French Revolution, I mean, that's a huge leap from writing songs which express a person's feelings to, you know, one person's feelings to a rock opera, which is about the transformation of a nation. How, how did that happen? How did you resolve that your mission was going to be to take, of all themes, the French Revolution? It's after, you know, several steps which suddenly you can only ex re-examine after you've been living through, because at the beginning when you, you have a kind, you feel a kind of message inside yourself, you cannot interpret it immediately. First started with West Side Story, which has made, had made on, on my life a kind of impact, which I can even hardly explain. It's like a eureka moment, you know, an epiphany. Or, but I didn't know what to do with that. I knew that there was an art form in America, I, I didn't know it also existed in England or in Australia at that time, which was telling stories on the stage with music and songs, which suddenly struck me, you know, like, like thunder. But I went back to doing what I used to do at that time because I could not understand the message. It's only a few years later, I saw Jesus Christ Superstar in New York, and then it became clear that people who had the same background as we did, meaning they were pop songwriters before writing for the theater, and obviously I'm alluding to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, and I could feel that they were coming from the world of pop song, rock and roll, and theater at the same time, and they had put all that together and made their first musical or call it, you know, a rock opera as, as it was called as well. And that's how, after seeing uh, Jesus Christ Superstar in New York, by sheer chance, I was invited to the opening night. And uh, that's how I thought. But we have a story in France which had been performed by people who were our age, they were 25, 26, 23. I mean, Robespierre and, uh, you know, all the heroes of the French Revolution, Marat or even the Queen of France, Marie-Antoinette, was the same age. Uh, I thought that's the kind of story, being a passionate of history as well, that's the kind of story that we could tell with song and music. It will never work in France. I thought at that time, but that's what I would like to do. That's how I spoke to another French of mine who was speak, you know, had composed a few songs with me before. And both of us at the same time thought, but the person who can do that with us is only Claude Michel, because I knew about his operatic background. I knew how involved he was in thinking of one day being governing his own opera composer and all this very imprecise because there is no tradition in France of doing what we are doing or what we wanted to do at that time. So we met, we started to think, discuss and we went to work and French, the French Revolution became a kind of odd recording in a world where disco was everywhere. And we released that record with the trust of a few people and the record company I was working with at that, working for rather at that time. And that record, which was like nothing else, 
in a world where there is no musical theater tradition, became a number one hit in a week. Yeah, yeah. With no publicity, with nothing. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly we found ourselves having in our hands what would become then a stage show, because obviously the success of the album helped to get some people making the call, would you make it as a stage musical? And we did. Well, Alan, let's just hear a track from that concept album, which is such an overnight success. This is The Return from the Bastille, Retour de la Bastille. And you heard in there that line, La Bastille est tombée. The great prison, the Bastille, has fallen. It's been liberated. So how did that album become a stage show, Claude Michel? So we were a team of, of four young people working together. But the only two interested in opera and musical theatre was Alain and me. The two others, they didn't care about it. So we spent a full summer in a house, uh, linking together the 24 songs that we wrote for the concert album. And uh, once we had a full score for a full evening, at last we had a show on stage, we had producers, we did it in a big arena, and every night we were sold out. Yeah, 4,000 seat theatre sold out for 47 performances, incredible. So how did that that show, that that show about the French Revolution, become Les Miserables? Because it's quite a journey still to go before we get to the the mega hit that you're so associated with, Alain. I don't think it became. I think there are two separate experiences. We didn't know what would come next. We just knew that Claude Michel and I had discovered our passion for storytelling, had discovered our passion for the book. We did little did did we know at that time that the book always came first for every successive musical, however wonderful were the music and the lyrics. So we had discovered that by ourselves, kind of inventing our own rules. So we were looking for that next subject. And one night I was, I don't know, blessed by some uh, stroke of luck. Uh, And I went to see Oliver in London. And when I saw the young boy, the not Oliver, but the artful Dodger, his friend, in the streets of London, in the wonderful Dickens novel, turned as a musical by Lionel Bart, I just couldn't help thinking that... We had a story like that. We had a story which was, you know, using all the possible sentiments that can beat in a, in a human being's heart, and it was called Les Miserables. And I started in my head to build that same evening what Les Miserables could become, came back to Paris, told Claude Michel about it, uh, 
ask him if he thought it was a good idea because obviously I doubted it. And he said, it's a wonderful idea. Let's start to work immediately. Mm. We started working for it for ourselves and it was shown in France for 100 performances at the same Palais des Sports and it was a huge success in Paris long before we met Cameron McIntosh in 83. That was in 1980. We only met Cameron McIntosh in 1983 to start working on the English version. Right. It's because we did a concept album of the French production and I don't know why uh, a director from Manchester went to see the show in Paris and bought the record. And a few, a little time after, he had an appointment with Cameron and he wanted to give the record to Cameron so Cameron can produce it and he was able to direct it. And Cameron took the record and told him, French musical, it's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> So he he kept the album, but uh, that's it. And he told us after that one day in his flat, by a rainy Sunday afternoon, he was organizing all the LP, you remember the long playing records yeah. he, he had? And suddenly he found that uh, French Revolution in French. And he said, why not? I'm going to listen to it. And after two songs, three songs, sorry, Alain corrected me, he decided that's going to be my next, next show. He was totally captivated by it. He told us that it did happen once before. It's when he heard Wayside Story for the first time. And he immediately took the record and went to see Alan J. Larner, who wrote My Fair Lady, played some songs and Alan told him I'm very good of writing story about fantasy and uh, but never I will because I'm not I can't do it write about real people real poverty and uh, simple people of the street but definitely you have to do it well It's magnificent that it came your way. So you, you went to London, didn't you, to work on the show? Yeah, before that he came to Paris. And I remember the first call, you know, he called me. At the, I had a small office in Paris at that time. And he said to me, I would like to see you to discuss Le Miserable. Oh, wonderful. And he said, I said, and I said, who are you? And he said, I'm an English producer. And he said, I said, what did you produce? And he said, Cats. And I said, what? <laughs> that was not a good start he still came to Paris and the first thing he told us when we had lunch that, that day was you don't realize what you have written and that stayed with us obviously so in that journey to turn Les Miserables which, had, which is a well known story in France I mean everyone in France knows who Jean Valjean is they know the story of how he you know, just took some bread because he was starving and he ended up in jail and Um, they know the story about the lovers, Cosette and Marius, the, the lovers, they, they, they know all this. But I, I wouldn't imagine that that's a common, commonly known in, in England. You, you would have had to tell the story as if for the first time to an English audience, I guess. Of course, we, we did, because that's why we added the prologue 
to the story, which is now the first 15 minutes of the show, which didn't exist in the original French version. So in that first 15 minutes, not only we are summing up the whole story that you just explained rapidly, but also it's a kind of uh, uh, sum up also of the whole music that's going to, co going to come during the evening. And uh, it makes something we had never thought of because, as you said, everyone knows that part of the story in France. Five years of what you did you tried to run yes two for six oh one my name is Jean Valjean and I'm a savvy do not forget my name do not forget me two for six oh one so that was just the beginning of the work Uh, and then we went through many other changes and that's when we met all these amazing people uh, you know Cameron had assembled around us because he wanted us to be part from beginning to end of this re-rise and he said clearly to us I will only do it if you accept to come to London at any time any day more or less without warning during the next year or year and a half while we are preparing the new version, the English, which became the international, the world version of your show. And, you know, we met Trevor Nunn, John Kerr, John Napier, David Hersey, the English poet James Fenton, who helped us, by the way, devise this prologue. And then the lyricist Herbert Kretzmer, who had done an amazing job for the, doing the English version, which has become so well known all around the world. premiered in London in 1985. What are your memories of opening night? Uh, we were very, very anxious because everything in the press was very negative. And uh, the following day, it's a tradition for Cameron to have a lunch with all the uh, people involved in the creation. And it was a little bit like a funeral uh, lunch because everybody was sad we thought that that's it it's going to close after the critics we have and Cameron in the meantime was trying to call the box office of the Barbican Theatre where the show was created because it was a co-production between Cameron and the Royal Shakespeare Company and he couldn't reach the box office during the whole meal. So at the end, he rang the director of the box office of the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Barbican, and the guy told him, of course you couldn't uh, get the box office because we sold already 5,000 tickets. <laughs> and all the lines are engaged, and 
we don't know what to do. There is so many calls to buy a ticket. Mm. And all this was based on very, very negative reviews, yeah. except, except one. Well, the only line I remember is in the Daily Mail, that line saying what could be worse than a bad musical, and the answer was a French musical. <laughs> <laughs> but you know do you hear the people sing is a kind of prophetic line because at the end the people's words what we call the word of mouth traveled so fast and so loud that nothing could fight it and overnight after a week suddenly we are the talk of the town in London we already knew that the show was going to open in New York or in Washington rather before New York and plans were building up for the next five or six capitals in, the, in, in one month, in two months. And Alan, what were those people responding to that the critics didn't get? What's the audience hearing? What, what, what desire, what need, hunger is it feeding? I think it's first, obviously, the social implication of that show we didn't know at that time that it would ring so clearly and so deeply inside the people's heart the same way that the novel had before and i believe that i think victor hugo writing the novel didn't expect any of that either so little did we think humbly that we could suddenly take over and like convey to more millions of people his message, which we had respected, I think, completely. And that's probably one of the reasons why the show is, is popular. But also, I think there is another reason, which is that very often professional people, people who are used to see things all the time, cannot see something which is too different from what they believe is the canon of what you are doing, of what they like themselves, because all these people love musicals. And the audience doesn't have rules. They just take at heart something or they don't. And in that case, they did. Mm. And they did see immediately through it that there was something new, something unusual, something more emotional than in all the other musicals that they, they loved and still love. And they accepted to make that leap, and many other people, which I won't name it, very famous people, came to the show and said, that cannot run, it's impossible. It's not a musical, you know, by the usual meaning of the term. And it became that. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a critic. Few years after the opening, we came at home uh, because he wanted to write an article about me and Alain. And before he entered in my house, he told me, I must tell you, Claude Michel, I was one of the most cruel critics of the opening night of Les Mis. I said, but uh, you really did think what you said. He said, exactly, but I must admit that I did not understand at all what you wanted to do the show, the format, all sung through. It was not part of my rules. It was not a musical as conventional as I used to see before. 
Well, you, you had that huge hit and uh, it's still playing in London. It, it's playing all over the world at, at some time. Um, and you move on to uh, Miss Saigon, which is based on the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly. So the story of Madame Butterfly has been moved from Japan to Saigon and it's relocated during the Vietnam War. L- let's just hear some of this. This is the big love song between the Vietnamese girl Kim, she's the equivalent of Cho Cho in the, in the opera, and the American GI who loves her, Chris, who's the um, equivalent, I guess, of Pinkerton. Dreams were all I ever knew Dreams you won't need when I'm through Anywhere we may be I will sing with you A As you can hear, it's a beautiful song, listener. And I really do think, gentlemen, that your story is stronger than the story of the opera. Because in in Butterfly, Pinkerton's kind of uninteresting. He's a very one-dimensional character. He never loved Cho Cho. He's thoughtless when he returns to take her child. He just is a kind of embodiment of the heartlessness of well, colonialism, really. Whereas Chris is a, is a, is a lover. He, he loves this woman. That, that's completely true, what you say. But don't forget that Butterfly was inspired by a play written by a guy called Belasco. Himself, he was inspired by a French novel by a writer called Pierre Letty, who wrote a book called Madame Chrysanthema. And it's his own story with a temporary wedding in Japan. So, of course... Those people were in the 18th century or the dawn of the 19th century. It was a time of colonization, everything. So they didn't consider those people really like human beings, but they were more object. So when we had to update the story, we didn't want Chris to be a bastard like Pinkerton. I mean, marrying for a limited time a girl and after forgetting completely about her. It's not part of her world today. Well, uh, it's lovely to have met you both. Before you go, do tell us about this show, Do You Hear the People Sing, which uh, you're here to be part of. What are people in, in for? Who's here? Who's performing? Just give us the lowdown on Do You Hear the People Sing. Do You Hear the People Sing is a, an idea which was born out of the thinking that you know, some people were asking, where are you going to make a concert with your songs uh, now, which are famous all over the world? And we said, okay, we'll think about it one day. And then the idea came that maybe we could do a little more than that kind of self-satisfying show and try to tell the story or take the people into a journey about how musical was written, or at least ours. And how songs, you know, came, songs were discarded, songs were written, rewritten, re-re-re-written for the 10th time, that you go through sometimes 60 drafts before you are happy with a scene, etc. And all that is reflected 
together with the extracts from the best uh, from every show, including not only Mizrab, Saigon or Martin Gaia, but also from Pirate Queen, which didn't have the same success. And, uh, you know, anything that we've done, obviously going back to our roots, to the French Revolution, which will be sung in French in the concert, at least one song from the French La Révolution Française. And we have four of these performances, which are kind of unique to this repertory. We have La Crème de la Crème of the musical theatre actors, which is Michael Ball, John Owen Jones from London, Rachel Tucker as well. Marie Zamora from Paris. Uh, we have Suha from Korea, who played also Kim in London as well as Seoul, and Japan and Tokyo. She did also, and uh, we have two brilliant Australian, Bobby Fox and Susie Mathers, and uh, I'm missing. And you're missing David Harris, who played Chris in uh, an Australian production of Miss Saigon and who's currently touring the US with Moulin Rouge. And he's coming home just for this show. Look, it's a wonderful lineup. It just sounds like a fantastic show. Claude Michel and Alain, thank you so much for being my guests here on the stage show. Thank, thank you. you. Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil, and they're the creators of hit musicals, including Les Miserables and Miss Saigon. And uh, yes, you can hear the big numbers from several of their shows performed by the staff in that program called Do You Hear the People Sing? It's in Melbourne at Hamer Hall on the 27th and 28th of September and then at the Opera House in Sydney on the 1st and 2nd of October. And you can also hear these gentlemen in conversation at a separate event at the Opera House on the 1st. This is The State Show. I'm Michael Cathcart. In 2015, I came home to Aotearoa after 10 years working as a dancer in San Francisco. The last three years I ended up on the streets after my contract with the dance company that hired me ran out. It was one of the most intense periods of my life. But all those three years I kept dancing when I could and I didn't tell anyone I was working with that I was homeless. Some of my family knew and they were worried. Little did I know that all the stuff I was going through on the streets would evolve into something so beautiful. This is the performer Rodney Bell and the opening moments of his show, Mere Mere. When I returned to Tikawiti Tanga, my hometown, I realised that I needed to find new ways to be home again. My cousin was having a 40th birthday and I ended up carving a Mere Mere form out of Black Mighty. And I sort of looked at it like, wow, this might be my injection back into Māori Tanga. As I was carving this, I started getting into quite a meditative state. I'd leave a big mess everywhere. Wood chips, shavings. Then I started realizing, wow, this Mirimiri is going through great sacrifice. I started thinking about the sacrifice I had been through in San Francisco and the forgiveness I had to give myself for some things I'd done to other people, to my family for going over there for so long, because I left after my dad died. And I had to ask the wood for forgiveness because it's a living tree, you know. Mere Mere became this thing that I treasured and I actually didn't want to give it away. But then, when I was looking around at all the shavings in the dust, I was like, whoa, what am I doing? Making all this mess and sacrificing this thing to give to my cousin when I could give it to him just as it is. 
I was trying to make this beautiful thing. But you know what? It was beautiful already. Yeah, Rodney Bell. Mere Mere is an intimate, generous, big-hearted dance performance, inspired in large part by Rodney's experience of homelessness on the streets of San Francisco. So how did a young Maori man who trained as a butcher and played rugby become a celebrated dancer and end up homeless? Rodney Bell, welcome to the stage show. Hey, tēnā a whole heart of greeting to you too, Michael, and thank you for taking the time of your day to spend with me and share this virtual air. It's lovely to have you here. So you're talking there about carving a mere mere. What, what, what is this? Mere mere is a, um, a weapon that the Māori use back in my ancestral days. It's a teardrop shape. It's held in the hand and it has sharp edges on it because I use maire, which is one of the hardest woods in the natural woods in the world. I carve mere mere and therefore, as you heard, sort of remind me of the, lots of different sacrifices, not only the wood we've gone through, but myself. So you're an Ngati Maniapoto man from Te Kuiti, as you said, on the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Should tell us about this part of the world. You're, you're there now. What, what, where are we? Te Kuiti Tanga, it sits like um, mid-central towards west coast. It's a beautiful little town. If people play rugby, they'll know Colin Meads comes from here. They call it Meadsville and so forth, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's a town that sort of cloaked with um, a lot of mana from uh, my ancestral days. So uh, everybody is related here. It's a population of 5,000. It's a very strong and um, intertwined community. I was brought up here since I was born, my mum, my dad, you know, and so on and so on and so on. So, yeah, it feels like a very, very special place to me. And Rodney, what the listener doesn't know about you yet is that you use a wheelchair. Do you mind telling us what happened that brought you to that place? Yes, sure. Uh, 31 years ago, I acquired my disability as a result of a motorcycle accident. So I had no feeling in control from my chest down. And therefore, uh, through that journey of um, acknowledging this new vessel of mine, I went into wheelchair basketball. They say once you're in a chair, you go straight to the sports. You know, they chuck you. <laughs> right. You're going to be an athlete now, or you're going to be an amazing technician, or a computer expert, or something like that. Anyway, I went to wheelchair basketball, ended up playing for New Zealand for quite a few years there. And then dance found me, Michael. Yeah, and when did dance claim you as one of its adherents? Well, I was coaching uh, Auckland junior wheelchair basketball, and then a a lady comes to the spinal unit through the educational uh, person there and said, hey, we've got this uh, lady with long, fiery red hair that would like to show a video. Could you give 10 or 20 minutes just before practice? I said, sure. Her name was Catherine Chappelle, and she's the woman that planted the seed of dance in me, and and little did I know that day, she came in, Michael. We showed the video. She'd just come back from America. She was a dance tutor here at one of the universities up in Auckland there, and she was all fired up to create this mixed ability dance group. So she was scoping for disabled people that might be interested in finding a new way of movement and accessing space. So she showed the children, chucked me out on the floor, said, oh, can I do a demonstration with you? And I thought, yeah. And I was so ignorant to dance then. Michael, I said, yeah, she jumped all over me. I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. And then for a long time, she chased me up, trying to get me to go, trying to get me to go, and she caught me off guard, Michael. Took me to a small hall in Thames, which is a small place on the East Coast here. 
took me to a small little, told me that it's um, going to be some sort of jam thing, a contact improvisational thing, and that's where she planted the seed of dance with myself. Yeah. So how do you end up in the USA? I had been dancing for uh, Touch Compass here, one of the leading, the leading mixed ability dance company here in Aotearoa. You know, as artists, we sort of run on a shoestring at times. So I dived back into the commercial world, started like helping my friends sell these wheelchairs and then really good friend Suzanne Cohen asked me if I wanted to go to a mixed ability workshop like run by Axis Dance Company, one of the leading dance companies in the world, mixed ability dance companies in the world. It was in Seattle. I went there. Little did I know it was an audition. Like The second weekend, the artistic director approached me, Judith Smith, and asked me, if I'd like to join their company. And I had to like go, whoa, this would be a big shift. I came back and like I said, um, my father passed and, you know, I sort of had to get out of town, you know, because my father was my rock. And so I flew like a manu, like a bird, to the USA, to access dance company. Yeah. So was this a new world for you, that this world of, you know, disability and performance? Or did you know about this before you, before the wheelchair became part of your life? No, I, um, I wouldn't say I was ignorant in lots of ways because I've learned so much yeah. acquiring my disability. But um, I, I feel there's lots of blessings that have come with this new vessel in my life that I can't really put wits to. All I can say is that there, there were blessings and I was just so open to learning a new way of life after I acquired my accident because I really didn't know. For me, anyway, once I had my accident, I just thought, you know, it's a whole new world. It's a brand new start. It's like being reborn again, like reincarnated into um, the same body, but yet in, into a, a different way of navigating space and time. Yeah, but that's a very positive and beautiful way of looking at it. But people would naturally think, I'm sure I would think if I was disabled in the way you'd been, I would really wrestle with dark thoughts and a feeling that something had been taken away from me. Where did you find that sense of connection with something transcendent like that? Well, I think, Michael, I'm Māori. So um, I'm First Nations people here, so I've been brought up with a love and hope. And we always believe uh, that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And we always look for uh, signs of significance in relationship to reason. And, um, and, yeah, and I think that foundation helped me being brought up by nans, by my nanas who are, uh, my mum's mum had three sets of twins and she's got like 14 children in her life. Mum, My mum's a fraternal twin and then my other nan, you know, I think they, uh, my dad's mum had 20 children, you know, and just looking at how they brought, you know, the, their strength, we call it the mana. They were always on my mind, Michael. Yeah. So what happens? How does this business of you ending up homeless on the street? Because it's not just for a day or two, it's an extended period. What what happened there? Well, we, we don't make much money. I'll go back to this. We don't make much money in dance, so I couldn't save. I was a pretty, like, free soul. I ended up, like, um, my contract had run out. I had to go to the street, Michael. I thought, well, I can do this myself. I didn't want to put pressure on my family. You know, my family are just um, not struggling, but just getting by. So who am I to sort of put this pressure and stress on them? So I didn't even let them know to start. 
So I just hit the street, Michael. I've been in San Francisco for a while, so I already knew the streets a little bit. So I just went for it. And you know what? I've always been adventurous like that, eh, Michael? You sort of, um, like they say, when you get a lemon, you make lemonade. <laughs> so you're not talking You're not talking about it as a time when you felt lost. Well, I was a survivor. I'm a survivor, Michael. I bust. I played harmonica. And I created a game on the street that people will see if they come to the show. I had ways of paying my medical insurance while I was on the street, Michael. I, I bust. I could make like $60 in a couple of, like, two and a half hours. Yeah, it was grueling, but see, to survive on the streets, it's like a job, Michael. You know, you've got to get up, you've got to be smart. When I first started, I used to stay up all night and sleep during the day at Yubina Park because I learned pretty early on, if you try and lie down in the alley or something like that while you're asleep, the stuff's going to be gone. So I used to have a little rope tie find a little posse and I had this like blow up cushion thing that I'd lie on and just tie the chair and my backpack to my feet. So if anyone tried to take it, I'd wake up and go, hey, get lost. I'd have to take you as well. (laughs) (laughs) So to cut the story short, you you make it back to to New Zealand, to Aotearoa, and uh, you continue your dancing. You won all sorts of awards and accolades. You performed at the uh, Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. That was in 2018. And you could have left that chapter of your life behind you, the, the homeless period, but, but instead you're sharing it on stage within this show, Mary Mary. So tell us how this show came to be. What gave you the idea to take us to that part of your life? Well, Malia Johnson, who and I used to dance together with Touch Compass back in the 90s. We've always talking about doing something independent together. So we hadn't seen each other for years, Michael, and then we ca- I came home and I'm I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to retire and I'll just um, have a rest for a year. And I get a phone call from Leah. We start conversating. I start telling her about my journey. And she goes, well, that's the piece we're going to make. Malia Johnson is a mover and a shaker. And with a... A short amount of time, she goes, I've got a studio, I've got this, I've got that, let's go. So that's how it began, Michael, and then it was actually quite therapeutic for me, Michael, in in lots of ways. But, but, yeah, every time I revisit those stories and that, I can still smell, you know, taste, feel the energy of that time. So, yeah, it's quite special. Yeah. I should tell the listener that I've, I've, I've seen your show online and um, it, it really gave me the idea for the theme of today's show, which is that a story is always about a time when your life changes forever. And that really is the, true in your show. Every story is about a moment when things shift, when you go to a new kind of place, to a new kind of reality. Um, so, Ronnie, in, in Melbourne, you're, you're part of a brand new arts festival, your performance is, and it, which is called Alter State, as in Change State. So tell us about Alter State. You're, you're a foundation artist in, in Alter State. What, what is it? Well, Alter State is, uh, is a festival celebrating Australia, Te Papaka Nui Maui and Aotearoa disabled artists, Australian and New Zealand artists. I had the honour of being invited there with Joshua Pether and Carly Finlay to lay down and have a talk about what that might look like in collaboration with Art Centre Melbourne. So we went there, we had a talk, it was facilitated. Uh, we had a kōrero, had a brainstorm around what this might look like, and we come up with some principles that underpin this whole festival. And the principles, I find, are just a respectful way of navigating, negotiating, and communicating to our disabled artists 
And man, what a, I've never ever come across any organization or any festival, anything like that before. It was new grounds for me, Michael, but I went in there wholehearted and I just felt like, wow, this thing, this ain't no joke, you know. Once you enter that art centre Melbourne, the strength there of people who have performed there in the past and their building ain't no joke. And I was like, wow, this is serious. <laughs> and then two years later, look where we are, Michael. Yeah, it's a wonderfully rich program and uh, your performance of Mere Mere is part of it. Uh, Rodney Bell, thank you so much for being my guest here on the show. It's been lovely to meet you. I'm honoured. I'm very honoured. Thank you, Michael. Good on you. Rodney Bell, he's a dancer from Aotearoa and his show Mary Mary features at the inaugural Alter State Festival at the Arts Centre Melbourne. It's a beautiful show, really so intimate and trusting and open. Uh, it's at the Fairfax Studio from the 29th of September through to the 1st of October. And if you can't make it to that, you won't miss out. You can also stream Merry Merry On Demand from the 10th until the 31st of October. And it's free. Uh, you have to register for that, though. There's a link to all the details on our website. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is The Stage Show. We're looking at what makes a story today, exploring the idea that a story, whatever else it might be, is usually about a time when the world changed forever. And I reckon that the American musical's a pretty good example of this. Now, as it happens, Adelaide University has decided to stage the musical Legally Blonde, based on the famous movie. And they've reached out to a woman who has musical theatre in her bones. She's Nikki Snelson. She starred in the Broadway cast of Legally Blonde the musical as the exercise queen Brooke Wyndham a role she originated in the original San Francisco production. She's played Cassie in a chorus line. She got rave reviews for her performance as the Mad Hatter in uh, Frank Wildhorn's musical about Alice. And now she's a director and a choreographer. She's directed lots of university productions in the States. And she joins us now from Adelaide for a bit of a masterclass in musicals. Hello, Nikki. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. How did you become a musical theatre person, Nikki? Oh, do you know what? I was in second grade and I um, was very ill at home and my mother brought me home some VHSs. <laughs> she um, first brought me Grease 2 of all tragic things, that camp classic, and I just fell in love with it. And she said, well, she really likes that. I should probably get her some good ones. So she brought home Singing in the Rain and I saw Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse dancing up a storm and I thought, ooh, I want to try that. I want to do that. Um, and it never really occurred to me when I started singing and dancing that I could make a career out of it. But lo and behold, here we are all these years later. <laughs> yes. Well, you went off and you got trained. You went to the Boston Conservatorium. Yes. Uh, what happened there? What did you What did you get inducted to there? As soon as I got there, just being around that culture and being around all these other college students was so life-changing. And the Boston Conservatory is a pretty intensive program. You're going from 8 in the morning till 6 at night with classes in audition technique and acting and movement and all different styles of dance. And then you rehearse for a show at night until about 11 o'clock. So it was uh, throwing myself into the deep end for sure. Wow, that is intense. So what was your first big Broadway job? What was your, what was your break? 
So I was at home in St. Louis doing um, a show at the Muni when I met a director named Leroy Reams, who's also a big Broadway star. Um, and he was directing Hello, Dolly! with Carol Channing. Um, hang, hang on, Carol Channing did Hello, Dolly! like in the 70s, didn't she? She did it a seven billion times. Right. <laughs> she, she did a revival on Broadway um, in 1996. Oh. And yeah, they were taking the Broadway revival on tour and they cast me um, kind of sight unseen because I was working with the director. So my first very big gig was to go on tour with Carol Channing, which was just unbelievable and iconic and being around you know, she's a legend. She's a Broadway legend. Um, all day, every day certainly taught me a lot. And then pretty quickly after that, I got to make my Broadway debut in Anna Get Your Gun with Bernadette Peters, which so another huge legend. Yeah. Um, so those were my first two big gigs. And I was 18 and then 21. So I learned so much watching these incredible women work. Well, let's hear you strutting your stuff. Here you are singing Whipped Into Shape from Legally oh dear, Blonde. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's happening here? Help the audience make sense of this little bit of music we're going to hear. So this is the opener for Act Two, and it's when we first meet exercise queen Brooke Wyndham, who um, has DVDs and books that are about jumping rope. It's called Whip Your Way to Tighter Buns. And uh, she's going to end up being on trial, and Elle Woods, the heroine of our story in Legally Blonde um, defends her. Now, what you don't realize on that is I'm jumping rope the entire time that I'm singing. So it's a four minute long song of people doing all these crazy jump rope tricks while singing. It's quite the feat. Yeah. I could feel my buns strengthening. <laughs> oh, good. I think, I think you I'm can't so glad I could help. tighten your buns That's this morning. Right. You can't help sort of clinching yourself as you <laughs> jiggle around. I'm sure all of Australia appreciates what I'm saying. <laughs> all right, so you're in Adelaide. You're directing this show. So what's your approach as you, as you confront that cast there, which I guess most of the cast know, at least the movie, and I'm guessing that as director you don't want them to just to impersonate the film. No, yeah. So um, I think that because we taped um, Legally Blonde for MTV. It's out there. It's all, you know, on YouTube. They can all watch it. So I think they were all very familiar with the show. Um, we did all the auditions via Zoom, which was really fun. So I got to meet them. But when I got here, the passion and the dedication in that room, in that rehearsal room was just beyond. These students at the Uni of Adelaide um, are really driven and dedicated. And uh, George Torbay, who brought me over, started the program four years ago, and it's kind of skyrocketed there. They're doing incredible work. They're all triple threats. They can all sing, dance, and act. And, um, yeah, they're all turning into these masters of their craft. I expect big things from them. Mm. That's great to hear, Nikki, because musical theatre is such a – well, it's such a big-scale form of theatre. You know, it's not subtle. Yeah. It's bold. If you think about Absolutely. Carol Channing, she's got the biggest smile in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so do you have to help the performers get – to that kind of larger-than-life energy that's required? Because Australians are tend to sort of be more laid back than Americans who are always on the kind yeah. of front fender moving forward, you know? Absolutely. So especially with Legally Blonde, Legally, Legally Blonde um, has a bit of a camp factor to it. Um, so we kind of had to bump up what they would normally play. They had just gotten done doing Les Miserables, so <laughs> a little bit of a different uh, kind of show. But they all came at it with a ton of energy. Um, the, you know, we had to all get on the same page on the 
level of bombacity we were going to put out there. Um, but I think we've really gotten there and they've thrown themselves in. Yeah. So, so awesome. It's extraordinary you bring up Les Miserables because we've just been talking to the two guys who created Les Miserables. Oh my gosh, what, really? What, what What's the difference in this kind of energy that Les Miserables requires that this requires? Can you, can well, you? Well, they're both exhausting on different scales. Obviously uh, the story of Les Mis is uh, deeply intense and I, and the burden that you carry when you're an actor in a show like that um, is sometimes very hard to leave at the stage door um, because you're portraying these characters that are incredibly downtrodden and are having terrible things happen to them. But you get to sing that glorious score and be a part of that incredible legacy that is Les Mis. Then you switch to Legally Blonde, which is, it's all fun. It's, it's kind of a party from the word go. But by the end, there's great gravitas to it, especially now after the Me Too movement, um, the harassment that happens in than Legally Blonde um, is a lot more poignant now. So um, you get to go on this journey in Legally Blonde that starts off as this fun, fluffy, pink um, snowball. And by the end, it's kind of melted away to be about self-love and taking care of yourself and being true to yourself. And um, yeah, it's got a lot of heart. So Nikki, I'm trying to reflect today about what makes a good story, what makes a powerful story. And and right there, you've you've supported this idea that a story is about the time the world changed forever, because her world mm. is completely reversed. Absolutely, Abs- nobody's nobody's writing a musical about you know somebody cooking breakfast. It's always some giant um, life altering, life changing moment in people's lives. Well, as we say in Australia, chookers for the show, Nikki. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Nikki Snelson. She's a Broadway actor, director and choreographer and she's directed the University of Adelaide Theatre Guild's production of Legally Blonde, the musical. That's at the Scott Theatre from Thursday the 29th of September through until the following Sunday. And that's the show. Remember, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app if you haven't already done that. Listen to the stage show any time, day or night and nothing will ever be the same again. Uh, Do tell us what you like about the stage show, what you'd like to hear more of, what questions you'd like us to tackle. You can email us directly at thestageshow at abc.net.au. That's our personal email address, thestageshow at abc.net.au. The program is produced by Kim Jurek and I'm Michael Cathcart. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.